Welcome to Burning Platforms, a new podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. Every fortnight, I'll be joined by Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch and Dan Stinton from Guardian Australia to kick around the politics of big tech and the power of people and their governments to shape the future. In this edition, we take a deep dive into the power of algorithms and the industries growing around them to harness and monetize them with futurist Marie Johnson and former Human Rights Commissioner Ed Santo. But first, our wrap of the past fortnight's news. Lizzie, your choice has been some proposed regulation of Amazon in the context of workplace surveillance. Yeah, well, we've talked a bit about Amazon this year because there have been moves to unionise some of the warehouses in the United States. Uh, they were ultimately unsuccessful in that direct issue, but it has sparked a broader conversation, I think, about what it's like to work in warehouses like Amazon Fulfillment Centres and what we can do about it. Um, and it's interesting, I think, because we often talk about automation around the context of it, meaning there's fewer jobs, but we don't often talk about it meaning that there's fewer bosses or there's fewer managers, and we don't often talk about the automation of management. Um, and in fact, what's clear in the pandemic um, for people working from home, but also in the context of a company like Amazon, is that there are more and more productivity metrics available to companies, whether that's on Microsoft Office with very invasive productivity mm. tools that can help you measure things in micro units. Units, or it's something like Amazon where, where uh, workers in fulfillment centres have to run around with a, a scanning gun to collect items for packaging and dispatch uh, and the company can track what they do pretty much all the time they're at work. Uh, and what this was sparked by was uh, a woman who was essentially automatically fired because she took too much time off task, which is what it's called when you're not scanning items with your scan gun in an Amazon fulfillment centre. She took 60 minutes in the course of her shift and partly it's because bathrooms in fulfillment centres um, at Amazon tend to be a long way from the floor in which you're working. There's a great book on this, um, which I can post in the comments uh, if you're interested, which documents a journalist going to work in a fulfillment centre and it's really kind of frightening how long it takes to get to your start point and then you're stuck in these endless uh, shelves that, that stretch for miles. So even going to the bathroom can take a lot of time. This woman took 60 minutes to go to the bathroom three times in the course of a, an eight-hour shift and was automatically terminated. Uh, and so what has been introduced in response to that example, but also workers organising, because she's gone on to be an organiser of workers in uh, warehouses, you know, spurred by also, I think, unions taking an active role in this field, is a proposed piece of legislation in California, which is designed to address some of these issues. So it's looking at making sure that productivity quotas well, as a first step, unmade known to the people who are working under them. So it's clear what's expected of you and what might put your employment at risk. Um, so because what's clear as well is that people who work in Amazon warehouses don't actually know what productivity metrics they're measured against, their performance is measured against. And then also they're required to disclose it to government. But also a few things like, um, uh, you know, a prohibition on taking retaliation against employees who complain about those kinds of metrics. Um, and and also uh, uh, presumption in place that if you, um, for safety reasons, need to access things like hydration or going to the bathroom, that you'd be permitted to do so. And so I think it's an interesting piece of legislation. Um, Lauren Kelly, who's a fellow board member of mine on Digital Rights Watch, she talks a lot about digital rights with me, obviously, all the time. And one of the things she points out is, 
we talk about rights in a democracy, but one of the places where it's not a democracy is a workplace. And you have very few rights, in fact. And so it is then, I think, incumbent upon government to look at ways to limit that kind of um, dictatorship and the worst excesses of that dictatorship and how technology can be used to really make workers' lives a misery, which I think is what's happening with lots of surveillance technology in the workplace. Yeah, it's really interesting that, again, California, which is the home of the big tech empires, is also leading the way with some of the regulation. Here in New South Wales, there is the beginnings of an attempt to think through workplace surveillance with an inquiry in our upper house at the moment. And one of the areas which we've urged legislators to look at is the way that surveillance almost creates a secondary market um, in labour. So that if you, particularly working from home, which is a different context, obviously, to being an Amazon um, warehouse, but if you are working all day with and and producing um, knowledge information that is also monitored and then repurposed for a financial benefit, who should own that? So who should own the incidental piles of data that we all um, stack off every day, whether we're um, filling up our Slack channel or we're um, entering our workflow max or whatever system we're working on. And we, we, we know that they're set up to deliver extra value to employers, right? Yeah, or, or, or even worse than that, there was a company in, um, here in Australia that was requiring that employees give blood before they enter the workplace as part of a security dynamic. And a, a worker eventually took them to court and refused. And um, he was successful, but basically on a technicality. There's not actually a limit on what they can ask of you. And part of the thing I think that's very concerning about this is you're also handing a lot of information over to some third company um, that's contracted potentially with your employer who then holds all this information about you as well over which you don't have any control Uh, and so as the dynamic of surveillance in the workplace becomes more invasive it doesn't just limit your rights in the workplace it does also potentially have an impact on your life outside of work quite um, in quite intense ways and should therefore be the focus so yeah, it's interesting it's also in California because California is often seen as a leader when it comes to labour regulation as well. I mean, it's obviously the home of some of these big tech companies, but I'm reasonably hopeful that this could be uh, a beacon that other jurisdictions follow in terms of improving the lives of workers who are vulnerable because they don't have a lot of bargaining power. And, you know, in the case of Amazon, um, the company's actively resisted unionisation, which might be able to rebalance that. Dan, um, as someone that runs a lot of stuff. Um, what, are, what are the sort of some of the issues that you see arising from this work? Um, look, what, what this story reminded me of actually is something closer to home and that's, and that's robo-debt and, and the fact that you've effectively outsourced some quite significant decision-making to a machine without proper human oversight of it. So, I mean, go California. Um, I'm not an expert on the law, Lizzie, but from what you've just said, I mean, it sounds like this is, this is absolutely a step in the right direction. I mean, it just highlights the trend to me, which I think, again, we've spoken in this forum about quite significantly, and that is we're outsourcing more and more of these things to machines without necessarily taking the time to consider what the implications are of these things or at least having human oversight of what they could be. Someone being fired because they, you know, computer says no is obviously a pretty bad outcome, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, I hope, hope that California leads away on this and this end up, ends up becoming something which is um, which is sort of enacted around the world, Uh Thinking closer to home, Peter at the Guardian. I mean, uh, we don't have anything like this where we're tracking our workers. It's um, uh, and I don't know many companies that do. But it, it's it's been interesting actually over the last eighteen months 
Have you been pushed want- product though? Like, is, are people trying to sell you on the dream of getting more out of your employees? Yeah, hundred percent. And this is the thing. So we've I've been approached by numerous third, uh, third party companies, which uh, on the basis that they can provide much better uh, surveillance of our uh, employees and the work that they are doing by because we're not in the office and therefore able to witness them. It's completely unnecessary in my view. And if anything, what the pandemic has has taught us is that if you trust workers to do their job, uh, they inevitably do with very, very few examples. At least that's my experience. Oh, sorry, exceptions, mm-hmm. at least that's my my experience. So, um, but yeah, I mean, look, uh, once again, um, less faith in machines, please, I think is probably uh, a good starting point. Excellent. Okay, we'll move on to my um, offering this week, which is really my colleague Jordan's fantastic paper he put out this week that I've just put in the chat around influences, which is another area where you've got the rules for the old world and then uh, a disruption, which is the role of individuals with big followings who can then um, create a market in products and um, services wanting to pay them to distribute, you know, endorsements on Instagram or other platforms. And Jordan's had a look at this and the, the particularly the, the double if you're an individual, there's there's some very light touch um, codes of conduct, but nothing enforceable. Um, whereas if you are purporting to give financial advice or health advice or fitness advice, there's a whole range of standards that you need to comply with. So again, we've got this situation where we've got a new entrant into the, you know, the the ecosystem who and with with real value as well in terms of distributing content around and and building building reach for products and services but um without the guardrails that have been put in place um in the real world so interesting in your guys reflections on that there's a bunch of um recommendations we put forward but it's really to have a proper look at how this system's working have i done justice to that jordan you did great yeah yeah bang on <laughs> Yeah. What do you reckon, I, Lizzie? Well, I want to ask Dan a question, actually, because one, one thing I wonder about influencers is they often um, are used by small to medium enterprises rather than large businesses to push their products. And one of the things I think about social media is there's a lot of assumptions about how effective it is as a platform for advertising and how much work influencers do. And the businesses that are purchasing that advertising capacity aren't always in a position to meaningfully uh, isolate the utility of it for their business. And they can be, I think, quite easily duped. There was a really interesting SBS uh, doco, I think, a little while back about influencers and how, you know, this woman essentially created a fake influencer account and and took a whole lot of endorsements and, and made a bit of money but didn't actually do much with it. She purchased fake followers and the like. I don't know, Dan, do you think there is a bit of mythology around the actual capacity of social media to deliver on some of these advertising promises? Because they talk all about this really fine-grained data that they can use to, you know, curate audiences for you. And I do wonder how effective it actually is. Are you asking me to comment on whether I think social media is an effective advertising vehicle? The answer would be no. The Guardian is a much more effective advertising vehicle. But no, (laughs) in all all seriousness, I think um, this this had a moment, right? So there there was a period when... You know, it was sort of an evolution, if you like, of 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 the endorsement, the famous person endorsement, and the difference was is that there was all these influencers, obviously, that were getting these huge followings that weren't necessarily famous for anything other than what they were doing on Instagram or or Snapchat or whatever else. Um, I think 
there was a big rush of, of both big brands and small brands piling into this. And it's sort of come back a little bit as some of these problems have been exposed, uh, including some of the ones that you've referenced, Lizzie, with people setting up fake followers and whatever else. The problem, the problem with a lot of this is you're effectively paying someone to put out a post on Facebook or Instagram or, or whatever, name your, name your social media channel, and there's no independent ver verification of how that goes. And so it's quite easy for advertisers to, to be duped by it. The other part of this, which is difficult, is, um, I mean, most, well, all significant advertisers uh, sign up to a, a voluntary advertising code of ethics in Australia, which is which is run by the Australian Association of National Advertisers. Um, and people can make complaints about uh, ads to the ad standards um, board and, um, you know, you can some of the complaints that you've identified uh, or some of the issues that you've identified Lizzie could be could be made uh, a complaint could be made to that board the problem though is a lot of these influencers um either don't know this exists or if they do know it exists it's just too easy for them to clout it and it's too easy for an influencer to be able to do a sponsored post without declaring that it's a sponsored post mm -hmm. and so that's actually a much bigger problem is that we see a lot of these influencers that are doing posts that they claim to be organic claim to be they just you know they just love this product and as it turns out, they're being paid for it and no one is any the wiser. And there's no sort of independent verification of that. So they, they're largely getting away with it. Um, I don't know what the answer is other than um, advertising mainstream media, um, but that's my answer for everything. Yeah, the, the, the other interesting point is at what point, for instance, political parties start also accessing influencers to, to, to promote their messages. And I'm aware that it does happen. So there is no transparency on that. There is no um, authorization at the bottom of an influencer being paid to, to push forward political content. So it does create, um, you know, on one level, you could say that influencing is a fantastic democratization of celebrity. It's no longer determined by, you know, the Murdoch or TV Times or whatever, the, the, the audience picks themselves. It's just what you do with the value of that network. I think that's really interesting. Do you reckon lots of people think influencers are a positive thing? I feel like most people don't. The, you know, the incentives that it creates for people to kind of completely commodify their lives and then um, often push content. I mean, we're going to talk about this in a minute, I think, but, you know, mm. that can be very harmful for young people who uh, don't, get to see the full picture of people's lives and instead see a very curated aspect of it and, and often measure themselves against it. I, I, I'm not sure I'm interested in the democratisation that, of celebrity, well, I have to tell but you. That, but, that, but that's actually a critique of celebrity as much as a critique yes, of influencing, yes. right? No, no, anyway, I'm yeah, not then, against that. But, but it's the monetization and the um, re-decentralisation re de of celebrity. I, I'm not sure that's necessarily an inherent good, I suppose, is my question. Yeah. I think Definitely. you're probably right. Um, <laughs> kicking on to Dan's contribution, there was a fantastic series in the Wall Street Journal of all places, the Facebook files. Um, they got their hands on a bunch of internal documents and they fed it out with significant um, analysis, a whole bunch of revelations, including the, um, the fact that Facebook knew full well that Instagram was causing damage to teenage girls, um, that the moderation systems that they'd set up exempted VIPs and high flyers, that Facebook was ignoring flags on drug cartels and human trafficking. But the piece Dan was going to focus on, I think, was the algorithmic change in 2018, which really was pitched as um, a positive after the 2016 um, debacle of the the Trump election, Dan. Yeah, so look, this is some really fantastic reporting from 
um, the Wall Street Journal, and um, yeah, there were five parts to it. But the, the piece I want to speak speak to today is is the the part which relates to the change that was made to the Facebook algorithm in, in 2018. It was quite a public change. Mark Zuckerberg spoke about it uh, on a couple of occasions publicly and made the point that they were going to be downweighting, if you like, or reducing the prominence of professionally produced content uh, and increasing the prominence of uh, content from friends and family. And they positioned this as a way because they, they were doing this effectively to make Facebook a healthier place and, um, uh, and, and less divisive. It's had the exact opposite effect. Um, the, the, what these, this reporting has uncovered is that the motivation for Facebook doing this was, was not so much those high and lofty goals that um, Zuckerberg uh, mentioned, it was more that they were concerned that the engagement levels were consistently dropping in the newsfeed because people were, uh, on the whole, reading lots of news content from professional publishers or watching lots of videos um, rather than, you know, directly engaging, liking, sharing posts, commenting on posts. And so what this change did is it, is it prioritised the kinds of content that was going to result in more comments. And uh, unfortunately, the outcome of that was that the more controversial the post, uh, the more times it was shared, um, the more engagement that received uh, from the audience. And it worked. I mean, engagement went massively up after this change. Um, the problem was is it made Facebook a much angrier place. And, um, and also, it meant that the kinds of content that people were consuming on Facebook uh, relative to what they were consuming before was far more sensationalist. And um, I think this is perhaps what has probably not started, but certainly um, spurred on and, and accelerated this trend towards conspiracy theory thinking and, and divisiveness on the platform. Now, I know we're going to talk about algorithms in a lot of detail mm. um, in, in a second, but the, the one point I'd make on this is, is a one that I've made many times on this before. It's just, it was such an important algorithm change. Um, we know in Australia that uh, about 25% of people get their news exclusively from social media, meaning Facebook. And yet it was made without any oversight. And uh, the outcome was clearly that it was made, has made um, Facebook more divisive. And yet there's been no change and no, mm. uh, no impact for the company. So again, I just I think it demonstrates that we need, we need much greater oversight over these things. But, but, if, but if, your... if you helicopter it out, it's hardly surprising that the, the problem they were trying to solve was people were spending too long just looking at curated and professional content and they wanted to make it more organic and more, on one level, that kind of makes sense. But if you play it through, the idea that then your world's going to be shaped by conversations and bottom-up outrage doesn't sound so surprising. And then, the, but the bit that really got me was then these these documents show that Facebook knew it was causing problems. Organisations like BuzzFeed contacted Facebook and said, the worst stories we're, write, we're writing are going off and it's creating an incentive to write more of those. Now you can talk about BuzzFeed's logic there, but that's separate. But it does strike me a little bit like James Hardy realising that asbestos was causing lung disease and saying, well, let's just put that report in a, a box and let's keep making money. Mm. I mean, the outcome of this, right, is, is twofold. The, the kinds of publishers that ended up going better on it, not, not just publishers, but the kind of content, but I'll, I'll stick with publishers because that's my world for the time being was the more sensational. So your Sky News, your Daily Mail got more prominence within the newsfeed or received mm. more prominence within the newsfeed relative to your more um, traditional vanilla reporting such as The Guardian or The Sydney Morning Herald or even The Australian. So it, 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 you know, it amplified all the worst kinds of content, if you like. The stat that was most damning though, or the, or the part of this reporting that I thought was most um, concerning was 
one of the recommendations from the Facebook integrity team was that the single greatest thing you can do, the single most effective thing you can do to stop um, this kind of content from going viral and influencing lots of people is just either reduce or eliminate the ability for people to share this content. So effectively go to an Instagram style model. This was presented to Mark Zuckerberg. And according to this reporting, he went, no, that will hurt engagement. I'm not doing that. And just allowed and, and bugger the consequences. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a pretty bad um, view as to what is, or pretty unsurprising, but pretty damning view of what is most important for Facebook and confirms all of the things that I think we suspected about Facebook in the past. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, it's it's interesting because in the podcast about this topic, um, one of the reporters says, oh, you know, when Facebook started, they didn't really have any rules. And, you know, there's a commentary now in our chat just saying this. They do have rules, which is to maximise shareholder value. Uh, and it's not surprising to me that their their objective is not is is not to protect people from harm or to create um, infrastructure for social engagement that serves the public interest. It's actually to maximise value for shareholders. And so engagement is the key metric for that. Uh, and, you know, it's, the systems theorist Stafford Beer like to tell us that the purpose of a system is what it does. And the purpose of Facebook is to make money for shareholders. Engagement is the key vehicle through which they do that. And um, I think we... You know, there's a way, there's a sense that they may have sleepwalked into this of sorts, and I think that does let them off the hook a bit. I think they knew what they were doing, and they have uh, a set of tools at their disposal to uh, achieve a particular outcome. And so intentions aren't really good enough, or or a lack of foresight. The the other thing that comes to mind when we talk about this is that uh, you know Facebook is I think more like a government really than a company because it has a huge amount of power. Um, you know it facilitates public discussion, but you know it's in lots of parts of our lives in in a variety of different ways. Even if you're not on Facebook, you'll be affected by decisions made by that company. Uh, and it is telling that. I think also, you know, you were mentioning before, Peter, about um, what kind of work they did to cover up this research. Well, they're also, it's now been revealed, they've got a project called Project Amplify, where they have essentially a form of counterintelligence, where they're putting into the newsfeed positive stories to avoid the alienation of users. This is what kind of government, authoritarian governments do, you know, they engage in counterintelligence to preserve themselves from backlash by the people. Um so I do think, you know, there was Brian Merchant, who's a US tech writer, he was on Twitter saying that we need, you know, it's it's un, irredeemable, this company, and it needs to shut down. And it's very hard to to draw an alternative conclusion. It's it's just going so far in a particular direction. It feels like there's a lot, there's far too much to be undone in order to get it to a place of functionality. And that's pretty alarming given how powerful it is. There, there you know, is an that, alternative. That, Sorry, Peter, you go. Oh, I was just going to say to Lizzie's point, that the scope of the Wall Street Journal report felt like, you know, a, a delve into state secrets and the the workings of a nation state. And I think that that counter propaganda exercise that's an algorithmic <laughs> pumping up of Facebook feels almost Putinesque in its sort of um, its ambitions. But Dan, you finish off on this, and then we will go broader even still. I think there is an alternative. I think it's a pretty unlikely alternative, but an alternative to shutting it down at least. And that is that, um, you know, I think Nick Clegg has come out publicly with a pretty ambling statement, actually, but nonetheless has said, you know, we're not talking about, at least Facebook is doing this research. Um, you know, our Snapchat doing, doing this research? Is YouTube doing this research? Now, um, I mean, that might be true. I mean, it might be a fair point. That's hardly, well, a, that's hardly a defence. 
Oh, look, I mean, there's so many things wrong with his response, but I'll, I'll put that yeah, aside yeah. for a second. But one of the things that you could do, one of the things that Facebook could choose to do is actually go, you know what, we're going to be transparent here. We're going to we're going to commission more of this research, not less, and we're going to be transparent of the findings and we're going to allow academics to assess the impact of our algorithm and we're going to allow, we, we, we recognise the central role that we play in the information economy and therefore we recognise that it can't all be left up to us and therefore we're going to be transparent and we're going to allow third parties to assess it. And if they did that, it would also encourage other social media platforms, including the ones that Nick Clegg was complaining about for not doing this research, should do the same thing and it would ultimately improve the overall environment that, that these companies operate but, but in. If, but if push comes to shove and Zuckerberg says, thanks for your work, but I'm going to keep making money, it doesn't really get us anywhere, does it? No, well, then you come back to, unfortunately, Zuckerberg is all powerful. Even his board has no say, no influence over what he does. So again, I, I, I'm not optimistic that this could this is going to happen, but I think it could happen. I mean, this this is the answer, right? Like, I think if they're arguing that social media has been a force for good in the world, questionable claim but if they're arguing that then fine also recognize just how massive and important and central it's become to so many people's lives you can't keep running it but on the whims of one individual in silicon valley you just can't it's not it's not tenable anymore mm. the great segue into the broader discussion around um the power of algorithms um i want to bringing into the discussion, Marie, who came to our attention um, with a great piece in Innovation Oz this week where she coined, I don't know if it's your phrase, but at least she she used the term algorithmic industrial complex, which for those of us who sort of did our political economy back in the 80s and 90s, the military industrial complex was a way of understanding the... Um, the, the geopolitics of the Cold War and beyond. Um, so welcome, Marie. And do you want to sort of just expand on your thesis a little bit? Well, thank you very much. And um, uh, thrilled, thrilled that the paper or the article got your attention um, in, uh, in the way that it did. Um, I'm speaking today uh, in Canberra, so the traditional uh, land of the Ngunnawal people. And I'd just like to open up by um, uh, acknowledging the traditional owners here today. My article was based on my observations and experience over a number of years as to the machinery of government. And I'm making these observations as someone who's been inside, um, as well as someone who's worked uh, on the outside as well. And the, the, the power differential, which I think is uh, part of part of this is something incredibly um, important to to understand, and it's not just the power differential between an algorithm um, and uh, a person who is subject to that algorithm, but it's a power differential between um, the state. The twenty years over the last twenty years, there has been a real hollowing out of capability. Um, in the public sector, and at the same time, there has been enormous growth in capability in these spaces, in you know, uh, technology and digital algorithms elsewhere. So, so, so what we see is this power differential uh, rising, very, very similar, if you like, trends to the military industrial complex and also into the medical industrial complex, um, which has also been characterized by some of these same common patterns. 
So the enabling environment uh, is starting to look like that. Then we start to observe actions by government which actually are not challenged. And these um, legislations and ways of policy um, are more or less just starting to happen, not just in Australia, but we see this uh, United Kingdom and United States elsewhere. From our experience in Australia, my direct experience with the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and I've also uh, worked in Department of Human Services. What is happening in those areas is the, the rise of algorithms where people um, are defined by, by personas. So there's a whole lot of work that goes into um, the definition of personas, which are not transparent. There's been you know, no, um, if you like, transparency about how these personas are developed. On the basis of those personas, then robo plans are developed. And on the basis of those robo plans, robo decisions are made. So this, this is a common pattern that I've observed then from also robo debt. Um, and in recent weeks, um, new social security legislation, uh, a draft legislation also was introduced, which also spoke about uh, technological processes by which um, different factors would be taken into account in determining what streams people would be put into for, uh, for job placement. And these streams would give rise to a plan. So a plan for a person to uh, seek employment. And the way in which these, uh, these plans then are managed is through an algorithm. Did you undertake all the activities associated with this plan in your job seeking activities. So, so we see some common terminology making its way into the policy vernacular. One is uh, plans. So this is your NDIS plan, or this is your job seeking plan. Make no mistake, there will be a veterans plan and there will also be you know, health plans and so forth. And so there's plans, there's participants. So if you're a participant, you're an NDIS participant, or you might be a job-seeking participant, or you might be a veteran seeking services, so you'll be a veteran participant. So very, very common ways of describing people. Um, and then these plans, and then the robo-decisions that are made on the basis of um, your performance on those plans. The only way these um, policy constructs can actually be achieved is through algorithms. There is no other way that this level of uh, control can be undertaken except for the application of algorithms. And that I think presents a, a shift in our policy environment that it's no longer just government administration and potentially the outsourcing to a contracted service provider as part of that supply, supply chain for the delivery. It's actually dependent on algorithms. The policy otherwise would not even be possible without mm -hmm. an algorithm. And so, and so 
The problem then is there is no oversight over this. And these same common patterns, so I've just spoken about the Commonwealth government in Australia, very similar patterns were seen uh, in the United States. Um, I think it might've been The Guardian um, had a, an article about very, very similar pattern of people being assessed for their, in fact, it was disability healthcare support. Very, very same uh, pattern. People were assessed via an algorithm. There was a plan developed. There was budget associated with that plan, which lacked any context. And as a result, actually many people died in very difficult circumstances because they didn't have enough funding to survive. Mm. So, so I guess my um, purpose in the article was saying a couple of things. And, you know, kudos to, uh, to Ed in his work on the, um, uh, in the human rights uh, technology paper for, for starting to call this out. Because what is not contemplated anywhere is the um, additive impact of algorithms, mostly on the most vulnerable. So it's not just about one algorithm, it's about the additive impact of those algorithms. So you could have a person in the social security uh, job seeking uh, algorithm who has a job seeking plan determined by the algorithm. They have to go and apply for a certain number of jobs. And of course then many employers now have uh, recruitment systems run by algorithm. So these people, if you like, are being reduced to data elements in the government algorithm and then discarded as, if you like, non-competitive in the uh, employment algorithm of, uh, of a company. What really concerned me is that the rise of these algorithms has been a lot of discussion um, in civil society, actually, about the danger of these algorithms. But with the NDIS Senate inquiry into uh, independent assessments, which is where for the NDIS a lot of this started, there were over 370 submissions. Mostly all of them were highlighting the problems of the application of these algorithms to people who are incredibly not only vulnerable, but already significantly disadvantaged, but not one submission from the technology sector mm. who, who, who are the vendors of these uh, algorithms. So I might bring see, Ed in on, on that. Sorry, yeah. Marie. So, it, so for those that don't know Ed, former Human Rights Commissioner, now a real citizen again. Um, welcome, Ed. Um, a lot of your work was dealing with these issues. I'm interested to what extent you found this phenomenon being vendor-driven as well. Um, I think maybe we need to take one step back because I think Murray has just given like a real tour de force in understanding how these algorithms are kind of increasing, why and what some of the problems are. Um, but, um, you know, if you take a step back and, and, and what we did was we, we just asked people in Australia and a bit overseas as well, um, what they felt about um, decision-making uh, by humans and um, decision-making using, using algorithms. And one of the things that people kept on saying to us, which I was a little bit surprised about, was incredibly pragmatic. They said, well, 
I don't really care that much if you know a, a decision, even a really significant decision, is made by a human or a machine, um, or some kind of combination of both. What I really care about is that it, um, it has to be fair, it has to be accurate, and it has to be accountable. So there's three things: fairness, accuracy, and accountability are crucially important. And the 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 problem is that for some types of decision-making, particularly the sort of decision-making that Mari is talking about in the welfare um, area uh, uh, and you know, a range of decisions that are not binary, yes, no, factual decisions, it's, it's much harder to use an algorithm and, and really um, achieve those three things, fairness, accuracy, and accountability. And um, you can do it <laughs> um, cheaply, um, and it'd be much, much cheaper um, and more efficient in inverted commas um, if you don't care about those principles very much. Um, but, you know, Australians, you know, unsurprisingly do really care about those things. So that has to be, uh, I think, our lodestar. Um, if uh, a company or a government agency is thinking about automating or using AI um, to make significant decisions, um, it has to show that its decision-making process is gonna be fair, accurate and accountable. And it's certainly not gonna be um, any worse on those measures than the kind of system that it replaces. And isn't this, the, isn't this the main issue here though, right? Is that the problem with an algorithm is that it's complicated and usually not transparent. So, so the problem is that you've got these decision-making algorithms um, that are developed and because they're not transparent, it's almost impossible for someone to determine whether they're fair uh, or not uh, to, to, to reference your research. So, I mean, it almost feels like there's just got to be a, a cultural shift here. I'm thinking out loud, but something along the lines of when, whenever there is an algorithm that is involved in making a significant decision, there's almost got to be an obligation on every organisation that does this to be transparent with the key drivers of that algorithm. I mean, would that, would that be a potential solution yeah. to this? Absolutely. So we're, a big focus um, was, was on transparency, but it can't just be transparency. I mean, human decision makers, uh, I'm saying that as if I'm not a human, we human decision makers <laughs> are not um, completely transparent ourselves, right? Um, we all know um, if we're going to do something, if we're going to make a decision that is basically really prejudiced, um, which, which happens sadly every day of the week in Australia, not all any of us on this call, but others, um, most people know enough to hide your true motivation. Um, so if you're going to not hire someone because they have a disability and you can't work out um, how that, you know, it's going to work in your organisation, you're going to say, oh, no, 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 the reason you didn't get a job, it's got nothing to do with your disability. It's because there was this other person who was much more qualified. And so what we've developed um, over literally hundreds of years is uh, ways to really kind of pick away at the surface justifications that humans make to try and get to the true motivation, to really understand what the basis of a human decision is. And you know what? You can do the same with algorithms as well. It's not perfect. We're not sort of kind of get, in the same way that we can't um, in a human decision get to the absolute 100% um, you know, truth uh, with certainty, but you can get really confident about what the fundamental basis of a decision is. But that's a choice. It, you can have it's a more expensive used to. Yeah, but you, yeah, you can have a conversation with a human where you can't have a conversation with an algorithm. True, but you Sorry. can interrogate. Yeah, you can interrogate its operation, right? Mm. And so there are some quite sophisticated ways um, of of getting to the bottom of it. But it requires the system to be designed in a way that is 
capable of being interrogated. And that's always a design choice. So if you want to create a black box, if you want to make it really difficult for people to ever get to the bottom of, of, of the decisions you're making, then that's a, that's, that's a choice as well. Um, but, but it's a choice that should be, uh, I would say, prohibited if you're ever making a decision that, that, that is genuinely affecting people in a significant way. But, but that's where Marie's point about the industrial complex part of it comes in, because if you're making algorithms to make money, they're, they're going to be different. Now, Matt was talking on the, the chat about open source would, would, would actually deal with a lot of those issues. Lizzie, what's your take? Yeah, I think it um, it is interesting to watch Dan in real time come to the conclusion that open source is a good thing. So yeah, I think absolutely. I saw that in the chat. I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> sure that was what I was what I was saying. <laughs> that, was, that was nice to watch. Uh, what yeah, what I was I was going to say is I think we also have to be clear about what algorithms can do for us. Um, you know, I read a really really uh, what I thought was a very interesting piece of research, which someone done analysis on RateMyProfessor.com, which is a site where professors are rated, does what it says, uh, and he and he broke it down by gender, and it turns out that people rate female professors more poorly. Uh, they they dislike it more when female professors assign them homework. You know, just kind of things that you would instinctively think to be true, but you, you may not have seen demonstrated in, in real time. And the conclusion that guy draws is that... Um, you know, the, the traditional Marx, well, the, the great quote from Marx was, you know, philosophers have only interpreted the world, the point is to change it. And he was saying, well, maybe we need to invert that, that we don't use these algorithms to kind of make decisions to change the world, but we use them to interpret the world as it is. And I think there's some utility in that because what these systems can tell us is how we are thinking or how we're doing kinds of things. Because, you know, the, the computer aspect is one component, but there's also data aspects um, and gaps in data that get fed into the computerized system. And sometimes it's not clear that those gaps exist until you've seen a computer interpret it for you. And the obvious example, I think, there is uh, predictive policing, where you think, oh, I'm interested in health and safety. But it turns out if you use, um, you know, crime statistics as a source of data to inform predictive policing, what you're going to get is more and more policing of certain kinds of communities because Correct. that's the kind of bias that exists in the real world. So there's, you know, it, it tells us, oh, well, policing is perhaps not interested in safety. It's actually interested in something different that it can help us interpret how systems in the real world operate and give us then the opportunity to address those problems and to correct, I suppose, human bias, but in, you know, an evidence-based way. But that's not the same as uh, wholesale industrializing government decisions or uh, escalating the efficiency of how the state operates. It's actually about saying, what are we going to use computers for? We're going to use them to try and disorganize the kind of oppression that exists in the real world uh, by helping us make sense of these problems and bringing them to the front of our consciousness. I think there's a, um, a standard for government that uh, really needs to be carefully looked at. And um, we, we, we hear a lot about uh, statements about fairness and I for one challenge that because I think it's an enormously subjective concept um, as applied in the NDIS is incredibly politicized. Um, the examples in the United States also talk about this incredible um, uh, bias that's built into people understanding what fairness actually is. In whose context uh, is, this, is this there? And um, so I think fairness can be a little bit of a marketing um, grab, particularly by a lot of organisations. But um, um, 
when policy can only be executed at scale by algorithms and government doesn't have anything to say about it, I think, I think that's, that's a concern. And so we can talk about, you know, we can interrogate an algorithm or we can speak to a person and so forth. But when policy um, is being executed at massive scale, when there's high, high levels of subjectivity around what this notion of fairness is, um, where you actually can't interrogate the algorithm. And if you ask a public servant to do it, nor would they be able to do it because the skills aren't there. The skills are actually with the uh, companies that will be developing the algorithms. So, so I think for public administration um, and trust in government, this is an incredibly important issue that um, point in time we're, up, we're at now. I for one would like to see the whole discussion around fairness really challenged because when you are the subject of something that is supposed to be fair, uh, it's highly subjective. And, uh, and so anyway, that, that's just my, my uh, both experience and interpretation of, um, of what's going on. I don't think fairness in its, right, in its own right uh, is enough when the power of the state is executed at scale through algorithms. Ed, you um, obviously put a lot of work into this during your time with the Human Rights Commission. Um, you've moved on. Tell us what you're doing now and particularly what you think is going to happen to your report. And, you know, I'm interested in also what you do with that as a citizen now as well. Yeah. So um, our report had a number of findings and, and recommendations. Findings, I think, have been largely embraced by government and, and the private sector, which is, which is really good. Um, some of the recommendations can only be implemented by government. We're talking, um, mm. we, we talked about some tweaks to legislation, um, there, well, and, and something, something a bit more than tweaks, if I'm honest. Um, but, but on the whole, what we were saying is enforce the existing laws better. Stop ignoring the existing laws and yeah. pretending that these are all ethical issues. They're not. Um, there's a whole bunch of laws that, that could protect our community if they were rigorously enforced. So we worked really closely also with all of Australia's federal regulators um, who, who, who all have a role to play in doing that. So I'm, I'm hopeful, if you put the legislation to one side for a moment, I'm hopeful that the kind of bureaucratic parts of government are all starting to creak into gear um, a bit better, um, including, you know, the Human Rights Commission was on a journey as well. Um, and so, so you know, um, I was going to say we, they um, are still kind of lifting their game too. Um, legislation, look, this close to an election, I think is probably pretty unlikely, but I'm hopeful after the election um, that'll be something that, that can be embraced. But there's a second part to it as well, which is, you know, there's a heck of a lot outside of government that needs to happen too. Um, mm. I think most companies don't want to treat their customers badly. Um, they they want to make, you know, decisions efficiently and so on. But, but you know, um, and they need to lift their game if they're using these sorts of systems. And so what we've set out really clearly is um, what they need to do. And, and, and you know, frankly, when I was at the commission and, and then since I've been inundated um, with, um, you know, requests saying, okay, we, we've, we're taking this on, we want to do it. Can you tell us how to do it in this particular um, context? So that brings me to my current role. So um, I, I'm leading this initiative at uh, UTS, University of Technology in Sydney. And um, it's, it's basically saying, you know, 
we, we talk a lot in Australia about a skills gap when it comes to artificial mm. intelligence. And usually what people mean by that is technical skills. You know, we're not pumping out enough people with data science and STEM and all that sort of thing. And that's, that's a real problem and others are working on it. Um, good luck to them. But there's another problem, which is just as serious that no one is talking about. Um, and that is a strategy gap. So you, if you take RoboDebit as an example, you had very senior people in government who were kind of um, looking at ways to uh, recoup money back into the welfare system um, for, from people who had been paid more um, than they were entitled to. Then you had a couple of, of tech companies whispering in their ears saying, hey, you know what, this problem that you've never been able to solve, we can solve it like that. And it'll be using the magic of technology and you don't need to worry about it. And you know, they were so susceptible to that, right? Like, because, wow, this is fantastic. So susceptible that they banked the savings for years into the future before yeah. the system had even gone live. Right? It's an extraordinary situation. And then, um, you know, that decision at a very high level then becomes the problem for um, kind of more um, people in middle management in government then to kind of work with the tech company to work out a system to make it all happen. Um, we all know uh, the problems, right? Um, but what we want to do is, is stop that from ever happening again. Um, if you are a senior person in government or in the private sector, you need to understand, um, you know, ways in which AI and algorithm is sa are safe to use, things that, that can be grasped and can really improve lives in the way that, that Lizzie, for example, mentioned a moment ago, and areas where the risks are just ridiculously high and you need to either find a different way to do what you're trying to do or put in place really tight controls to stop harm from taking place. So it's, that, that's the big problem we're working on. We want to work with, we, we will be working with government and the private sector to help them understand that much better so you can make better decisions and um, you know, keep Australians safe. And what about your um, grand dream of a moratorium on facial recognition technology? Where mm. do you think that's going at the moment, given that we're now looking at home quarantine being mm. driven by? Yeah. Look, um, I'm kind of tearing my hair out. It feels like a dangerous thing to do at my age, but I am tearing my hair out a bit about because we, we had this bill that the federal government proposed a few years ago. It was a terrible bill. Um, for the Identity Matching Services Bill. It was the first bill to get knocked back by the powerful intelligence and security committee of parliament in 15 years um, and so they were to go back to the drawing board put in better privacy and other rights protections and then what happened was just radio silence so now we've got the worst of all worlds in that there's no legislation at all that is there to protect people against harm from the specific problems associated with facial recognition so it's, it, that, that really is a digital wild west it's just it's just happening um, and so uh, we we just it just seems inevitable that there are going to be huge problems and by that i really mean real injustice uh that that, that takes place and um and that's probably the thing that will prompt um proper action but what we could do right now is we could have some um legal protections put in place to to prevent um to prevent harm and i wish that 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 would um occur I like, Ed, your reference to um, um, preventing harm. And I think perhaps, you know, the, the, the statement about do no harm should be almost um, the, the, primary, the primary statement, you know, in all of this. And, I mean, we've, we've spoken before. I loved your um, proposal for an AI safety commissioner. Um, I think that is something that 
I hope gets taken up, you know, by, by some government. In my interpretation of what would be needed would be such a body um, to undertake or oversee the undertaking of a um, some sort of an inventory of all algorithm algorithms that are used by government and probably the private sector as well, but let's start by government. And I think it'll be pretty surprising what people actually find. I was contacted just during the week by a senior officer in a government agency who I won't name, <laughs> um, who, um, uh, who was wanting to talk about their recruitment system, which uses AI. You know, um, so where do you go on that, right? Um, so I think there does need to be that sort of central body that at least co helps coordinate um, the undertaking of such a, um, you know, of such an inventory, because then you would get a sense of the overall additive impact of algorithms in different um, in different communities. That I think is a, a, a massive threat to um, the risk of harm. Indeed. We're just coming up to the um, end of the hour. Thanks for your contribution today, Marie. Um, thanks for your time, Ed. Um, we hope to see you here more often. Um, Dan and Lizzie, any parting thoughts, anything that we need to be looking out for over the next couple of weeks? Lizzie? Yeah, well, I would just say uh, as a last pitch before we go that um, Digital Rights Watch is hosting Imagine uh, on the 30th of September. It's the second in our four-part series about um, rebalancing the internet economy for people. And this one's looking at the relationship between digital platforms and writers and bloggers and poets and wordsmiths. Um, so if you're interested in how we can make platforms work for people doing this kind of work we'd love to have you there and and there'll be two other events that that look at different kinds of communities using online platforms including activists and the like uh, and making that work for people rather than large multinational corporations um, we'd love to see you there so feel free to come along and you can sign up to digital rights watchers newsletter if you want to learn more about that series Great. Thanks, Lizzie. And um, we are expecting imminently the privacy um, review. Um, so we may be digging down deep into that in a couple of weeks. What else is on your radar, Dan? Uh, and the advertising uh, services, ad tech services review, which is also due to drop next week. So um, there'll be a bit to talk about. Uh, I'll finish on a positive and a negative on the same topic, which is a bit predictable. On the news media bargaining code, I was dismayed this week to learn that uh, the good folk at Facebook have uh, refused to do uh, a deal with um, both the SBS and the conversation, as well as many other smaller publishers, uh, which is definitely contrary to the spirit of the code. Um, on the plus side, uh, The Guardian intends to um, make some very public announcements around the very substantial expansion that we have undertaken and are still undertaking um, with largely with the help of uh, the deals that we have done with Google and Facebook off the back of the news media bargaining code. So we'll have more to say on that uh, next month. Excellent. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Lizzie. This has been Burning Platforms, a new podcast from the Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis. We held this webinar on Friday the 24th of September and things may have changed since the recording. The tech world changes fast. It was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. You'll find more information about the Centre and links to our research papers, as well as a weekly blog, Tech Check, on our website, centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. And if you want to join us 
in real virtual life, every fortnight we run Burning Platforms as a public access Zoom as well. This episode was produced by Jennifer Macy. Stay safe out there and thanks for listening.